I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connection, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsilavus. This is episode 40. 4-0, baby. We've done it. A whole 40 episodes of Coppola Connections and there's a whole lot more to come. Uh, some of you may be asking, what, 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 what does Coppola Connections mean? That must mean this is your first time listening. So what we do over here is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time. I don't do that alone. This week, I will be saddling up and joined by Helen Sadler of the fantastic Flix Watcher podcast to talk about the 2003 Oscar-nominated Sea biscuit, but we'll get into that in all good time. As is always the case on the podcast, we will be talking about this film race by race. We will we will not leave any kind of uh, I don't know my horse terms are not very good. Uh, yeah, we'll be leaving no stone unturned. We, we'll spoil the hell out of this. So if you haven't seen this film, uh, check it out uh, and come back and watch it. I'm sure you'll be able to catch it on ITV free on a random Sunday. I'm sure it's probably. I don't know, US listeners, it's 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 on cable somewhere. It may maybe streaming over there. I don't know. I don't I don't, I don't live in America, guys. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, this episode was tons of fun. It was amazing to speak to Helen about a film I'd kind of put off the years, but we get all into that in this episode. So I guess all that's left to do is to collect up all of your sadness, befriend two men with equals amounts of sadness as your own, and train an underestimated horse as we make some Coppola Connections. Up, race to the finish line as we look at 2003 sports film Seabiscuit. Nominated for seven Oscars, directed and adapted to the screen by Gary Ross from the non fiction book Seabiscuit, an American Legend by Laura Hillenbrand. The film stars Toby Maguire, Jeff Bridges, Chris Cooper, Elizabeth Banks, Gary Stevens, and William H. Macy. 
produced by the powerhouse producers and Steven Spielberg's best mates, Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy, the film cinematographer. And today's Coppola collection is our thoroughbred boy, Jonathan Schwartzman, to help me tame this film and see if it has the chops to prove the Coppolas are the greatest film family of all time or if they deserve to be turned into glue. It is someone who is more uh, more used to delving through the Netflix back catalogue to find gems. It's the host of the Flixwatcher podcast, Ellen Sadler. How are you, Ellen? I'm very good, Petros. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm good. I'm, I'm ready and raring to go to talk about this film. I'm, uh, we're it's a, it's we're raring time. at the gate. <laughs> Or the or the walking start, like depending on the stipulations of the race, um, of the horse's preference. That's it. So before, yeah, before we get into talking about the film, um, question I wanted to ask you out uh, uh, the gate. Obviously, yeah, your surname is is Sadler. Um, do you, do you, yeah, you're aware of the etymology of, of 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 that surname and why it is so prescient to be talking about a film about about a horse today. Um. I didn't even make the connection until you mentioned it. Um, but <laughs> I know that obviously a saddler had something to do with horses and my name has only got one D. So at some point along the family name, it lost the D, but kind of kept it. So presumably at that point, maybe they were saddlers and then they weren't possibly i haven't been on like you know there's websites where you can delve into your history i haven't <laughs> done any of that so please wow me with the with the knowledge so it, yeah the 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 old english the old english and german word for a person who made saddles was saddle uh, so with one d and obviously over time that's kind of the l shifted back and they've added an r on the end and yeah it's become saddler so yeah, it feels like a it feels like a very fitting. Do you feel like the perfect guest? They're like, uh, if if you're going to tell me in a moment, you also have horses as well. It's gonna I'm going to be wowed completely, Helen. Well, my husband does work at Ascot Racecourse, which is where Amazing. the the horses do the racing and the <laughs> Queen goes. And uh, uh, he was able to answer some horse related uh, questions that I had when I was watching this. So uh, there's a little bit of a Amazing. A horse support network I have there. Amazing, amazing. I, I look forward to to uh, to finding out what tidbits he told you. So, um, yeah, as 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 we get started on the podcast, I always like to ask, like, tell us tell us what Flix Watcher is about. What what is it you guys kind of do there? How, yeah, you've you've been going for ages, right? As well, we have. I can never remember how many years it is, but we're uh, we've released around two hundred and fifty episodes. So with that. We're that old. So we're a Netflix review podcast. And in each episode, we have two guests joining myself and Kobe. And one of those guests will have picked a film that is available for viewing on Netflix. We have a little bit of a chat about it. Um, usually I say it's not very good. Uh, <laughs> no, not always. And then we will rate it using our unique scoring. And those scores will go into a table, which you can have a look and see which the... Uh, the top rated films are and the ones are at the bottom so it's a a great way to discover perhaps some hidden classics on netflix that you didn't know were there and also we have a lot of um podcasters on there as well so if you listen to it you might find your new favorite podcast um 
and yourself you've been on there as well as a guest (laughs) yes so um has seabiscuit ever been on netflix it feels it feels i i i i I, I, i'm not sure if i've vaguely ever seen it it's a film i avoided for years so (laughs) i don't think it has it's one of those that it kind of came out and it feels very, very, very much of its time and it is very much what it is. It's very, very Oscar baity. And I don't know, I don't think it really did anything in the UK just because we don't really I mean, I'd never heard of the horse before and the only reason I'd heard of it is because I was a Tobe Maguire fan. So it's one of those kind of weird ones that it kind of did what it was supposed to do, sort of. And then mm-hmm. disappeared and no one ever talks about it. And it's kind of like, if you look for it, you'll find it. But it's not really one of those ones that people go, oh, yeah, I was just watching Sea Biscuit at the weekend. Isn't that <laughs> a great film? People are like, oh, maybe I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. And that's kind of the vibe with yes. Sea Biscuit, I think. Yes, 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 yes. Very much. Uh, it's a, it's a mum and dad film, I find. I, my, um, I recently told my mum I was watching oh, She's like, oh, Sea Biscuit, good film, good film. Really, really like that one. Uh, that's kind of, I think that was my prejudice to why I never watched it for years. I was like, it just seems like a bit of a bit of a dad, like a dad film. So uh, kind of, I was, uh, well, we'll get into my thoughts on it a bit later. And but before we do get into our thoughts, um, when, yeah, when did you first become aware of the Coppola family, Helen? And the kind of, was there an entry point of a person? And when did it kind of, I don't know, the penny drop that there's kind of other members of the family and they're so interconnected. So I can pinpoint this exactly. So um, <laughs> one of my favourite films when I was about 12 years old, maybe 12, 13, was Bram Stoker's Dracula, which Amazing. is very famously directed by um, the godfather himself, Francis Ford Coppola. And I had the poster on my wall. I loved the soundtrack. Um had it on VHS. I was big into Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder and I loved it. And that was like my entry point, even though I knew he'd done The Godfather and I kind of knew that part three had been a bit crap because he'd cast his daughter, but I didn't really understand The Godfather that much. And it wasn't till many years later that I watched those. And then I think it was more a bit later that I kind of realised that Nick Cage was vaguely related um, and kind of got into his action films around Face Off. So my dad used to get Empire, so I used to read that a lot. So there was lots of bits going around. But yeah, kind of late 90s, but specifically, he's always been the director of Bram Stoker's Dracula for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah you're saying about uh, Sophia Coppola getting uh, cast in godfather part three originally was supposed to be winona Ryder, which uh, many would argue would have made it a lot better film like you can kind of you can kind of see that lineage of al pacino and diane lane kind of no not uh, diane keaton kind of yeah she kind of embraces both of those she's got like the anger from pacino and the kind of uh kookiness that keaton kind of has so she would have been perfect sophia yeah you're a good director. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> um, have you ever had the good fortune of meeting a Coppola at all, Helen? I haven't, no. <laughs> Sadly not. I mean, not even like the slightly smaller ones. So um, n- not yet. Um, but, you know, 
maybe one day one of them may be a guest on Flix Watcher. You never know. You never know. Yeah, you, you you never know. If you go to enough uh, film festivals and stuff like that, or yeah, uh, screenings in London, who knows? Sophia might be knocking about, or Jason Schwartzman might be there in a in a in a, in a tweed suit following Wes Anderson about. Who knows? Uh, so, um, what would have been? The, this is, I always feel weird with this one because I know unless you're kind of Roger Deakins or like kind of one of the super uh, cinematographers, people don't tend to look out for cinematographers that much. But do you, do you know what would have been the first uh, John Schwartzman film you would have seen? So I was having a look, and I think it probably would have been like The Rock. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I mean, The Rock, Armageddon, that definitely is the, the kind of era of films that um, I would have seen, but obviously not really like even acknowledged probably at that time that there would have been a, a cinematographer. It, I would have seen them as being like Michael Bay films anyway. Uh-huh. So yeah, there's, it's, uh, yeah the, the, the Rock definitely. There's, a, there's obviously an argument to be made that Jonathan Schwartzman could be blamed for like um Michael Bay's aesthetics obviously he worked on two of those like earlier very big I mean big films when he was establishing what was a film de Michael Bay but I don't know and I do I do also know that Michael Bay is prone to uh on set kind of if he's not happy, he will just grab the camera and shoot, like, be like, I'll shoot it then. So I'm not sure if it's kind of, you will bend to my will, Jonathan. This is how the film should look. Upskirt shots wherever you can, please. I mean, I don't... Michael Bay does a thing, and, you know, he's very good at doing that thing. Yes. And I kind, of, I kind of like a bit of Bay action, a bit of Bayhem every now and again. Oh. And... You kind of think about like you know he was he was also worked with him on on Pearl Harbor yes. and for all its faults I mean it looked great mm. and you know it it definitely I think the same as Seabiscuit it definitely kind of ticked all the boxes that it needed to do it, mm-hmm. I mean it wasn't like great but you know it's <laughs> it kind of did what it did so yes. I was kind of surprised when um, doing a bit of like research for this that. Um, Sea Biscuit and Armageddon are kind of like on his uh, CV, but you know, just shows you can, um, you know, your variety that you have, really. Yeah, and I don't think it's an insult to him, but he does very much seem like a a journeyman like cinematographer. Whereas, like, I don't know when, yeah, to to draw back to like Roger Deakins, people kind of get him because they have like, do you know what I mean? They want his kind of specifics that he can kind of draw. Even though I don't know. I guess it is the job of a cinematographer to figure out what the director's wishes are and their kind of vision and kind of replicate that on screen the best they can. So I guess being a a silent, yeah, or a kind of invisible cinematographer is kind of kind of a good a good thing, I guess, in some ways. I don't know if, if they kind of overshadow, like if you're there going too much of like oh oh this this shot this shot do you know what I mean like it's kind of I don't know it's, it's, I think yeah. I think if you can look at a film and go oh you know that's Deacon's that's that's a kind of like a special skill I mean he's probably probably the goat I'd say uh-huh. he's someone who most people would be able to probably 
connect a few of his films or be able to make that connection where I think not that many cinematographers really have that. I think he's kind of like, you know, top tier. But um, definitely John Swartzman. He's the kind of journeyman, but someone who can also handle action. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Which I think is um, definitely evident in this, in being able to, which I was watching it, I think it's quite a hard task to be able to kind of film horse racing as it happens. Because obviously when we watch it on TV, it's very much like a static camera and it will just kind of like film them going round. So be able to try and get you into the position of the jockey and be kind of in with the action it's, it's quite a tricky thing to do, whereas blowing up some kind of spaceship feels quite easy in comparison. <laughs> Saying that, Armageddon has, like, what I, watching it back recently, it's got some really mad shots in there as well. There's, like, there's like scenes where it's kind of all in, like, fisheye and stuff like that, and they just absolutely uh, batshit bananas. And I've, got, I've, got, I've got a big soft spot for that film. I own it on, on a uh, French Criterion Blu-ray dvd i'm uh i'm a big fan of armageddon uh well let's let's now that feels like a perfect segue to talk about seabiscuit and before we do let's quickly listen to the trailer Shoot him anyway, I'll save you the bullet. Rev Pollard, Mr. and Mrs. Howard. Hello. Of course it's nuts. Well, at least he wasn't expensive. Every horse is good for something. You don't throw a whole life away just because it's banged up a little. Just needs to learn how to be a horse again. How far do you want me to take him? Until he stops. Let's see what you got, boy. So, Helen, before I ask you for a synopsis, let's get some little stats. So this film was made on a budget of $87 million with a box office return of $148.3 million. It had a release date of the 25th of July 2003 and has a, a beautiful score by Randy Newman. Something I've noted down because, uh, yeah, d- definitely want to dive into that uh, a bit later so yeah uh can you can you can you tell us what is sea biscuit about helen so i'm not going to do sort of a, a plot narrative because it jumps around all over the place but essentially sea biscuit is a horse that enjoys eating and sleeping who doesn't and he's kind of like been labeled small lazy and unmanageable until one day chris cooper comes along with his horse whisperer magic 
and basically takes him under his wing at the same time as taking under his wing um, Tobey Maguire's Red, who, a bit like Seabiscuit, is a bit damaged, a bit unmanageable, and, let's face it, blind. So, like, Seabiscuit is a horse with an injury, and he's an ex-boxer with an injury, and together they make a beautiful partnership and win loads of races, and everyone loves it, and it's set during the Depression. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. And uh, it is that thing, there's a kind of... Um... There's a moment at the end, like the, a, 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 a kind of caveat to the film, where it's like the thing that's been signposted throughout, and it's like uh, Toby Maguire's voiceover going, "People thought that we that, that we we found that horse and 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 made it better, but what really happened is the horse made us better." And it's like, I know we've been watching this for the past two hours and 20 minutes we know we, we know that the film is is that the, that's what it's, it's about the 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 people but what i didn't realize is it just really fits the archetypes of like a sports movie and it's i love sport i i, I don't know why i'm not massively into sports but i love the kind of redemptive arc or the kind of like do you know what I mean? Like the, the classic peaks and trough of like the rise, the fall, and then the rise again at the end. And this film beautifully portrays, uh, yeah, portrays that. So um, what like, yeah, what are kind of some of the early moments in this? Oh, let's, let's, let's go back even further. When did you first see this film? Like, uh, what's your kind of relationship with it? What made you pick it? So I am a bit of a Tobey Maguire fan. So I don't, I don't think I saw it at the cinema because it was one of those ones that was a bit like, I don't know what a sea biscuit is. Oh, looking at the poster, hmm, it's a romance with a horse possibly. <laughs> and um, I definitely would have seen it maybe a couple of years afterwards when it would have come to like DVD or like Sky or something. So definitely saw it then. Hadn't seen it since and thought it would be an interesting one to revisit um kind of in the light of you know toby Maguire's made a little bit of a resurgence with his i mean can we say it i mean everyone knows he's in he's in the most recent spider-man it's been spoiled hasn't it and yeah i just thought it would be nice to to go back to it because i really don't think many people saw it mm-hmm. and um it's it's one of those films that it's 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 a little bit unremarkable because the story is very much kind of like a, a classic underdog in this. We've got like two underdogs in like the horse and Toby Maguire's character, but it is a really nice film and it's, it's really well made and there aren't that many kind of like horsey sports films around. So it's kind of nice to have a sports film that isn't like over, you know, overly macho and really like testosterone kind of like, whoa, yeah. And it's actually quite sensitive and watching it back, um, it looks really lovely as well. I mean, it's got all those like rolling hills and um, autumn tree scenes as well with the horse. And there's just like some really like lovely moments with, with the horse as well. So, yeah, I was hoping that it will have aged quite nicely and would be an interesting to, to revisit. Definitely, yeah. This was a first time watch for me. And as, as I said, like, I kind of I wrote it off. I I don't know why. For the longest time, I thought it was a Spielberg film for some reason. I think, like, because I think it does have the ambling connection, it kind of, like, has that vibe of around that time, it kind of seemed like uh, Spielberg was very much, like, vying for, do you know what I mean? And uh, 
going it's for Oscar Beatty. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of like I'll do Saving Private Ryan. I'll do something that's like period set. Like, uh, uh, yeah. And then obviously, yeah, directed by Gary Ross. Had you seen Pleasantville at all before you would have seen this? Because that's another to- Toby Maguire's in that, right? Yep, he's in that. Yeah, I would have seen that. Um, which I love that film. I think that's a a, a great one. Uh, so yeah, definitely seen that and he i think he also did the hunger games as well a bit more recent the first one he's got an interesting career he's only got six directing credits and yeah well one of them is a documentary short for the hunger games cast interview so i don't think that counts so he's done five features uh free state of jones i haven't seen and i haven't seen he did oceans eight as well it just it all seems a bit eclectic and mad like pleasantville and uh, sea biscuit, I can kind of understand, like because Pleasantville is kind of again period set, is it? It's a fifties set film. Yeah, it's definitely an eclectic mix. I have seen Ocean's Eight, which is a film, and uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely feel as though he kind of probably peaked. In I think Pleasantville and Sea Biscuit are weirdly they're quite two companion pieces so i think they'd probably make quite a good double bill if you were looking to have a toby Maguire double bill which yeah. you know who wouldn't <laughs> um well one of the things like I was, I was watching through the special features on the dvd and it's like you you definitely get the feeling from gary ross that this is something he's like was really passionate about he said like i kind of I love this kind of story. I love the love the period. He's like he wrote the film with Toby in mind, so kind of had that to him. And there's this great kind of anatomy of a scene he does where he talks about his process where when he's doing his shot list, he doesn't just write the cameras here, this is what we see, this is what we see. He kind of writes the emotion to it as well. So why the camera is there, like what are we trying to convey to the audience? So the scene, the scene that it conveys is uh, the moment we get early on in the film, 17 minutes in, because I kind of noted this, because like, oh, I am crying. Because, yeah, we kind of have these, at the, at the beginning, we have these kind of disparate stories of um, Tom Smith, uh, Chris Cooper's character. We have uh, Charles Hud- uh, Hudson, played by Jeff Bridges, and, yeah, Red Pollock, these kind of three... In, soon to be entangled stories but um in yeah in the charles houston one there's that that moment where his his son like sneaks off in the car to go fishing and that's the scene that like he 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 breaks down and says like what we'll do when we shoot him in the car we'll do a low angle so we can really show the audience kind of how small he looks in the car kind of have these establishing shots of all of the things that he'll be picking up. So when obviously the car crashes, like they will be the things that kind of we see without seeing the body in the car and stuff like that. And it's kind of, I don't know, he's like his process to it sounds really interesting and kind of like, it's not just like, uh, I don't know, like the technical side of it. He's, he, he wants, he wants to, he wants the audience to emote and it's kind of, it's fascinating to kind of hear that from a director of I'm not just going what will aesthetically look good and he, he, even down to look the funeral shot he says like his notes say like do a wide angle shot far away give them 
privacy, give them space, and the shot of Jeff Bridges crying, kind of cradling his son on the porch, was done with like a telescopic lens as well to kind of again like give us that sense of distance that we're, I don't know, yeah, you kind of feel like you're in that moment as an audience member. I felt I felt like I was prying in on a moment I shouldn't be seeing almost like kind of I'm devastated as well. I'm, I'm someone with a young son and I was like no, don't kill the kid so early on. Like, oh, no, like we've literally seen him for two scenes, once as a baby and now as a kind of precocious kid who wants to read Flash Gordon comics. It got you. I mean, so many <laughs> other directors would have gone for kind of a dramatic sort of long shot of the car flying off the off the, the cliff face and into the water and made it a kind of incredibly violent event. But by showing that it you know the sort of the his packed lunch floating it is really emotional and I think that's really interesting to hear how you know he's kind of looking at the the family's privacy um I think it's a really sensitive way of approaching filmmaking because Mm. a lot of people would kind of like zoom in on the grief and like really go hard on it and be like you must cry you must cry whereas he's giving you like these little cues and for you it was kind of like your parental kind of feelings kicking in knowing that you've got like a little person and they're having interests and you can kind of like feel that in your life and there's another moment that got me quite early on as well when I was like I was kind of like "Uh oh I'm in trouble here. I'm going to be a wreck by the end of this film it's the moment where uh Red's parents basically like sell him or like give it like sell him right they sell him to yeah. kind of like a rancher to be like you got a career in in horses kid like don't 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 flutter away your dreams here's your books like i think it's when his, his dad said i've even got your old milne in there i was like he wrote winnie the pooh i was like that's tragic it's, it's like it's so sad the journey from sitting around the family table reciting bits from books which pre-tv entertainment looked like yes. a riot um, to basically being sold to a life of pain. Um, was, it's, it's a pretty quick journey that all of the sort of three characters make from everything being great to everything being like really depressing, which I think is a kind of great way of being able to kind of explain the depression without having to kind of give facts and figures and sort of like over tell the story of it. But mm. Yeah, and his family are like, oh, we'll we'll write to you, and like, we never see them again. Yes, yeah, and, and from from my research, like that is that is what actually happened to the real red in real life as well. Just just imagine like those those times, like yeah, if, you, if somebody moved, like it's not like now. I don't know, especially around that depression era time, it's it's kind of crazy. And there's, I I think what this film does really well, especially in those establishing moments, that kind of first half hour is it does really clever character development without kind of like signposting too much it's just kind of like really subtle things as there's, there's that shot we get of chris cooper kind of riding across the fields and he comes to a barbed wire fence and in the kind of background we see like a kind of car racing up the road and like he just looks perplexed at the fence and it is this kind of like you just get that immediate feeling that he's a man from the old world and he's going to have to find a way to, I don't know, yeah, like he's kind of, he's he's past it. Like, is he going to have to 
I don't know, fit into this this new new way of fandangled cars, or is he going to still be able to live his life as this this horseman? And we get yeah shots of him kind of what is it like riding riding the trains and like kind of with other other dishevelled looking men kind of living that hobo lifestyle and kind of yeah. It's, um, but yeah, the the characters converge when when we get to Tijuana. Um, what do you what do you make a kind of the set design and the kind of the look of this film and the kind of costumes, Helen? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, I completely forgot like there was any kind of bits in 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 Mexico and stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Like it must have been a completely like wild time. Um, because you've on one hand you've got the depression, and then the other hand they've got like this, like secret life almost in Mexico where they're all just drinking and racing horses and fighting. And don't they say that's where um, Jeff Bridges' character goes for like a quickie divorce? Um, and you know yeah. that's where you go to to get those things. But it's very much like you can tell there's a lot of thought going into catching the details, and you know the costumes are great, and um, you know. Tobey Maguire's haircut is very much of the time with his kind of red curls and uh, it's one of those ones where you can kind of feel fully immersed in it and mm-hmm. you can kind of go along with everything because there's so much attention to detail and it just looks it just looks really great. Yeah, we get some amazing shots. Well, there's a particular shot I, I, I loved in that um, Mexico sequence when the, look, we're kind of we're with we're with red and he kind of like goes to start a race and then they kind of get this crane shot that kind of moves on up and kind of like dips back into like a side i don't know like garden almost and it's when uh chris cooper's character uh saves that horse from being shot and it's just like ah the kind of juxtaposition from this kind of yeah we got charles and his kind of hoity-toity friends all kind of living it up betting on the horses and stuff like that and then you've got you've got chris cooper there kind of i don't know like less do you know what i mean less than his bottom dollar to his name kind of like and still has compassion again yeah just great character development like that that's so as, as much as it is kind of it's very that that it does get into there is stuff in this that is very signposty right do you know what i mean like as, as much as i said like there's some nice character but there are moments where it's like this guy is very nice to horses remember that i think my uh favorite of that is where um it's it's kind of like the meat cute of um red and the horse and chris cooper is there watching um sea biscuit basically be unmanageable and he's kicking and he's like the jockey can't control him and he's all like wild and all over the place and then just over his shoulder Red is like Sea Biscuit, and he's fighting and he's punching and everything, and it keeps going backwards and forwards. It's like, do you get it? Do you get yeah, it? Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. didn't, we're going to go back one more time, and you're like, oh, we got it the first time. And it goes back and it goes back again. <laughs> so it's kind of, I kind of forgive it because I think the mu- the movie is quite cute, but I think maybe now audiences might be a bit like, oh, this is a bit cheesy, yeah, but eye rolling. Yeah, you've yeah. kind of got to go with it with this film. This is the kind of storytelling that was of a thing during it's it's you know it's a classic noughties film so it's schmaltzy and like no more so than there's moments i think uh, quite early on red's kind of he's gonna he's gonna give up on them and like run away and we get we just get like it, it 
yeah, we get like voiceover of like moments we've seen before where it's like, you've got a real gift, kid. Like, don't squander it. Like, go, go with this man. And it's like, okay, we could have had some visual story. We didn't need that added in to tell us that he's having second doubts. He could have just like kind of, I don't know, walked back. Do you know what I mean? Like, just with a facial expression could have conveyed the same thing. But the film's like, no. Like, you, you remember that thing you saw t- 10 minutes ago? We're going to bring that right back up for you. Um, so what are the... It's not not really much suspense going on, is there? It's a bit like you're just kind of waiting for it to happen. You're like, oh, yeah. Yes, but I, I think that is, the, that is the kind of thing of sp- sports movies, right? They kind of have this, they have this archetype and it's almost like you'd be disappointed if they don't kind of... Um, yeah, if they don't, if they if they don't fulfil it. So, um, what do yeah? What do you think of this as a sports movie? Does it do it? Does it do the sports movie well? Yeah, I would say it does because it's basically classic underdogs. They've kind of both been written off. They, uh, you know, there's kind of some nice montage of sort of their training. And there's some like when they're kind of getting to the after they've gone through the, the the kind of chatty battle about war horse, war horse, not war horse, war admiral, um, different horse, and um, they they start on kind of like their rocky training montage, and yes. they have to race in the dark. And there's some really nice kind of like editing about them training the horse to like run on the bell, and it's filmed at night, and the, d- the horse has to run through the night. Um, so you've got kind of like your training montage, and then there's kind of the the moment which comes a bit later on where there's the injury like the shock injury and it's leading up to the big race and there's lots of emotions going on and then the race happens and it's all great <laughs> and then there's a bit more and then you know there's there's more injuries a horse gets injured and so there's there's like a roller coaster of emotion and it kind of ends on that really nice sort of high note and you know, it it doesn't get turned to glue, which is you know, it could have it could have been that, you know, it ended like with unfortunately he was shot, but it doesn't end like that. One thing I was really surprised with this as well is a lot of these kind of based on a true story films end with like three pages of like postscript of kind of like you know what I mean you're there you're there having to pause the DVD being like it'll be like. And then Red Pollock went on to do this, and Charles Hudson did this, and Tom Smith did this. This film's just kind of like, no, I ma- the only thing I imagine that would be done like nowadays is it would have ended a little bit, I don't know, just, just kind of directors trying to be a bit more edgy, like, it doesn't matter if he wins that last race. We're just going to like, do you know what I mean? We're, not, we're going we're to end the film before then, whereas this one's like, nah, he, he wins by a country mile. And I know that when they came to shoot the the actual horse races, because obviously there is footage of like the War Admiral race and stuff like that. A lot, a lot of these, yeah, w- were caught on like film. The choreograph that choreograph all of the races, which sounds like mat- just so they could kind of, I don't know, yeah, match those races. And obviously, there's people out there who'd probably be real anoraks being like, "Well, actually, I think you'll find that this racer was." uh a little bit further back in that race or whatever or yeah like all, all of that kind of stuff and the way they did that is they actually got the jockeys to they just <laughs> they rehearsed so much got the jockeys to kind of run around the track as well like to kind of 
know where everyone was and the way they filmed yeah you mentioned about john schwartzman and kind of getting those shots of the people on the horses they got the um special effects guys to create it's essentially like a kind of mechanical rocking horse fake horse yeah 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 yeah. which like just like had the same movement of it it looks wicked i'm not sure if you've seen footage of them kind of riding i haven't seen it no it's uh, attached to basically they called it the ss the ss uh sea biscuit because it looked almost like an aircraft carrier that they kind of this big truck thing where they had these two horses side by side so those moments i think in that final sequence where we have um, uh, Red and George kind of talking to each other, you kind of get a glimpse of of that kind of from from afar. How it was that, like how it would have looked when it's not kind of filmed up close and personal, seeing the faces and stuff like that. But yeah, so I think technically and stuff like that, it's, it's great. Like you you feel I don't know, invested, you feel excited, right, when you're watching the races. It's like, and I, no offense to your husband, but like. As a as a as a, as a a non meat eating kind of uh, animal lover, I do I do I do oppose horse racing. I still found myself kind of swept up in all of it. <laughs> but it's interesting you should say that because it's obviously there's there's different types of racing. So you have jump racing, which is obviously the one that um, the Grand National is, in which horses tend to get injured, and then flat racing is just quite standard. So they they very rarely have injuries in that but i was going to ask you whether you you've ever been to a horse race which i guess possibly not no no i haven't i've one i think my kind of social standing it was never the kind of thing i would be going to anyway and uh it's yes it's it's never really appealed to me i think i think it's the kind of like reason i never watched this film as well like do you know what i mean like is the, the the working class kid in me was like nah I don't want to watch anything about a load of, load of rich people and their horses. It's kind of interesting because it's the vibration of the horse and the sounds of when it goes round is is quite something. And the atmosphere is very intense. And obviously as Seabiscuit gets more popular, he kind of becomes a bit of this sort of like icon for the, for the working class people and yes. for the poor people. They all come out and see him. So to be at one of those races with all of those kind of people in like the cheap seats as well. So it would have been the people in the, in the stands, but also there at the racetrack, the atmosphere would, would have been kind of insane. Yeah. 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 yeah I, lo- I love those kind of shots. And I, lo- I like this. Shot. I imagine some of it is kind of finding archival, like photos and stuff like that, especially when you get those moments with William H. Macy as this kind of, uh, or is he like a kind of, disc jockey kind of like got his own sound effects and so all of a sudden it'll be like like go doing like horse clacking and stuff like that i'm gonna walk over to this lady right now and ask her what she thinks about it uh yeah we get those shots of like people up trees and stuff like that and i imagine like i don't know yeah like restored images of what it would have actually looked like there and looks like it's meticulously recreated as well yeah i can that's what I mean. I can buy into it as somebody who's like opposed to it. I was like, I was like, yeah, wicked. Like, ride that horse. Like, it, I, I want it to win. Just don't turn it to glow. <laughs> um, so you mentioned you're a big fan of Toby Maguire. How do you think he does in this film? What do you, what do you kind of think of his kind of character development and his performance? 
Yeah, so obviously he's a little bit taller than what you'd expect to be as a jockey, and they kind of um, acknowledge that. So this was kind of like really interesting because I think this came in between Spider-Man. So he had to do a fair bit of kind of like bulking up and bulking down. And um, I think it kind of like depends on what stories you sort of believe. And there was some kind of maybe some bartering around him trying to get um, a bit more uh, cash out of paying for, for Spider-Man 2 by um, extending the work on this. And I think he picked up some sort of back injury from this. So in his kind of like list of films to go like from Spider-Man to this is kind of interesting, but this performance is very much what, um, it's quite similar. He was in the, the cider house rules. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, kind of like a similar era, similar vibe. Yeah. Sort of, um, he kind of played a type, I think around a certain kind of period. Um, but this is slightly different in his kind of like, really sort of scrawny boxer phase where he's kind of like a bit crazed and I think he's great um so yeah it was sort of cider house rules but with a bit of like brawn and, and fightiness in it but I think he's great I think he manages to um be completely believable as this basically poor kid who was deserted and has basically had to kind of scrap and fight um in not very nice conditions and then when suddenly he's sort of shown kindness he's not quite sure how to do it and he's got like loads of anger and issues that he tries to work through and through this like lovely relationship with the horse he kind of mellows out a little bit through it so he kind of like grows as a character with it and he's for me I kind of I'm believe finding believable and with him all the way on his journey yeah and there's, I, I, I like to think it's a uh, direct reference to Spider-Man. There's a moment where it seems like he has his spidey senses because uh, the race where uh, Seabiscuit gets hurt, he's kind of sat on a porch and he can he can like feel it and sense it as a woman's beating a, a rug and stuff like that. He can kind of feel the race and as as Seabiscuit goes down, it's almost like he's like, oh, 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 like he's kind of like yeah, almost like convulsing at the thought of it happening and stuff like that. I was like, I still got those bloody spidey senses as old Toby. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I think he's really great in this, and he kind of I don't know. He's got a look of him, this look of one, like just wonderment all the time and stuff like that. Like uh, something about his face, I always find like fascinating, especially around this 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 era of his career and kind of I don't know. I think yeah, his uh, the, the 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 way he plays and the character as well is is fantastic in the way that like he's super believable in that like. You, you get like glances from him when he's being loaded onto the train after he's come out of the hospital and he sees George standing with uh, Charles, Tom and Marcella. He's kind of, you, you still get that thing that he's, he's there still trying to get rid of that kind of beast on his back that he's not good enough or, or kind of, he just always has this like chip on his shoulder and it's, it's yeah it's he, he he conveys that so well just in like glances and stuff like that his kind of facial expressions and you know, a lot of fa- some great face acting like the sad eyes so, yes. like when uh, he definitely feels really hurt when he finds out that they've been racing see they've been trying out sea biscuit after his injury after so basically he breaks his leg in quite a horrific way and 
Seabiscuit hurts his foot. And basically, they're both sort of told that he'll never ride again. Seabiscuit will never race again. He'll barely even be able to walk. And through like a lovely little montage, they take it nice and slow, but they kind of nurse each other back to health. And then, you know, just as you think like, oh, you know, maybe they could race the sort of like the, the betrayal where you see see them all with uh, his jockey mate is just like it's like real heartbreak because he's he's done this journey with him and he knows that they're going to take the horse away from him and he's not going to be able to race and it's just like your heart goes yeah so yeah the, the, the mate you're talking about george right is played by gary stevens who is who is a real who was a real life jockey at least he only uh, retired in like 2018 i think like and has the hasn't got in 1996 won an award that is like awarded to people like it's the the george roosevelt or what was his name or george yeah it's the kind of george roosevelt award for jockeys basically which is kind of a cool little tidbit i found yeah, it's good that they managed to bring in um, some actual jockeys in there because I think it definitely gives a um, a, a lot of realism to it. And uh, one of the questions that I was asking, I was like um, to my husband, was like, "Do you really think like jockeys would have like had conversations as they were riding?" And he was like, "Yeah, they kind of like chat to each other as they go along, and like they probably wouldn't beat each other with the uh, whips. I think that is very much frowned upon. But um, yeah, apparently they they have like." little chats and might might say some you know bits of to each other as they're they're racing along so accurate bit of smack talk yeah yeah you mentioned the kind of like hitting them with the kind of uh whip and stuff like that That very much seems like he's at like what would be the equivalent of like destruction derby like horse racing back do you know what i mean kind of no holes bars a bit like yeah the kind of the life he's leading at that moment red it is very much that kind of racing kind of barnyard boxing it is all kind of seems a bit under the table do you know what i mean like a bit a bit dodgy and stuff like that uh, but like yeah I, I found that quite 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 amusing that there's i don't know illegal uh, it's illegal horse racing they're a bit violent stuff like that um but for some, if you've ever ridden, if you tried to ride a horse, it's pretty hard going. And if he, you know, he's trying to have a fight whilst riding a horse, which is a pretty terrifying thing to do because <laughs> those horses are fast. And yet he's there trying to have a fight on a horse as is racing. So, yeah, uh, with, we obviously, yeah, we've discussed Toby Maguire. Like, let's talk about some of the other cast in this. What do you think? What do you make of Jeff Bridges and Chris Cooper in this film as well? It kind of feels that they're just like really perfectly cast in these sort of aging old men with kind of like slightly harsher exteriors, but really soft on the inside. Um, I mean, it's always, always a pleasure to have both of them in the film. And they're kind of when you sort of see a film and you're watching it and their name comes up in the trailer, you're like, oh, I know where I am with these guys. Like, you know. They always put in a they always put in a good show and you know, you can always rely on them to be a good character, be an interesting character. So yeah, it's it's a good cast and yeah, they're great. I like the fact that uh just the year before, um, Chris Cooper would have worked with Nicolas Cage in adaptation as John LaRoche and he's kind of he's well suited to these kind of I don't know, 
very like outsider characters who kind of like in in the case of John LaRoche probably not a good guy in the case of uh, Tom Smith like this kind of seems a bit rough but like as you said he's got this rough exterior but a heart of gold and kind of don't know, still still knows his way around plants as well he's putting some kind of root on, root the, on uh, their horse yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. um they had to age him for this um uh-huh. and, and i think people were surprised that when they saw him in this they were like he's got teeth and he's like i do have teeth i just didn't have them for adaptation so he's one of the ones that seems to be this was his period for being digitally altered, I think, was um, yes. what people might remember him for. Yeah, I think I think in, in regards to ageing him up, they, they, they like even shaved in his hairline a bit like higher up to like kind of give a bit more of a widow's peak and dyed his hair white. Yeah, he looks they're both both him and, and Bridges. I like I like I love Jeff Bridges and I think he plays this kind of I don't know, almost like like yeah he's like a playboy isn't he he's kind of got all this money to do what he wants but again like he's got this talisman of this grief hanging around his neck that is kind of like i could like i don't i could become a real prick here but he's kind of like his heart seems like in the right place and um it kind of leads me on what what do you think of the kind of relationship and the kind of uh the character of marcella as as portrayed by uh, elizabeth banks it's kind of an interesting one because she she's kind of in the background a little bit. And mm-hmm. um, I was reading that in real life, she's she was actually related to his first wife, I think, in some way. No, so he, that's how they came to know yeah. about it. So it's something bizarre. Like she was the sister of one of his like the his son who died like the sister of one of his friend's mums or something like that so yeah it was a bit more like it wasn't this kind of meet cute at the at the at, at a bullfight that we see in the film it was a bit more like they knew each other before them that doesn't make for for interesting so that's a kind of no. story all, all all on its own isn't it this kind of like uh woman moving in on a like kind of grief stricken man or kind of like love found in that turbulent time of of grief yeah <laughs> she feels i guess she feels a little bit underused but yes, then definitely. the story isn't really around her mm-hmm. um but she kind of like she plays like a supporting um the motherly kind of role um to rev that he he never had and she sort of is kind of like the guiding voice as well for jeff bridges as charles so like elizabeth banks does a good job with not that much kind of material which is is kind of the case for a lot of sporting films because they do tend to be so male focused that the women are kind of like around the edges a little bit but yeah it wasn't until rocky free that talia shire really got a big speech on the beach to kind of give rocky the kick up the ass it's a that's genuinely Rocky Free is something I had in my notes for this as well. Is because there's there's that moment when Chris Cooper, like where they talk about how great Sea Biscuit is, and like Chris Cooper's like, yeah, but who's he been racing against? When the, before they kind of go for their big like let's fight War Admiral uh, fight. Sorry, I'm getting my films. Uh, get, uh, let's race War. Admiral. You would watch like a film where two horses are trained to fight each other, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, yeah. The kind of scripts of rocky free and sea biscuit got intertwined and it's 
uh, 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 Sea Biscuit is voiced by Sylvester Stallone and War Admirals voiced by Mr. T. I'd watch that in a heartbeat. Yeah, of course. But there's, yeah, there's a moment in Rocky Free where Mickey kind of says to, to Rocky, like, oh, you've been, like, you've been fighting shoo-ins. You've been fighting, like, kind of duds. Like, the, the, this is a guy who's actually got some, like, punch behind him. Like, this is someone you should fight if you want to prove yourself. And it's kind of like, I, I, I like that kind of, uh, it is, like, that was the moment it, it clicked for me. Like, this is, a, yeah, this is a sports movie. This is basically Rocky Free. Like, uh, again, uh, has, has a Coppola connection because Talia Shire's in that film. So, um, is there any other moments that you kind of wanted to talk, talk, talk about with this film? Kind of like moments that you like? Is there, is there things that you don't like as well? Let's kind of pick those out. Um, I mean, the the bit that I really enjoyed was um, I always get impressed with like animal acting, and there's some nice bits about like Sea Biscuit. So, um, like when they first get him, he's quite like rowdy in his little pen thing, and they bring in a little horse companion called Pumpkin, and there's a dog as well. And apparently, he did have like a horse companion for Pumpkin, and it was quite a a common thing. So it was really nice to kind of learn a little bit more about like the horse and when he's like lying and like sleeping in the grass and eating I was just like this is a horse that I can like fully empathize with like it's a great character and like animal wrangling it's not an easy thing because you know then they're, they're not they're animals so I have a lot of respect for people who can get them to do things like when he comes and he's all bandaged up and he kind of like is limping like along to Toby Maguire. It's like, that is some excellent horse acting there. So I, th- I think we should sort of acknowledge like how great the, the horse, the horse acting is. Yeah. The horse, yeah, the, it, it's fantastic. There was definitely a moment, that moment when they bring in the companion horse, I like wasn't entirely sure what the intention of that was. I thought it was like a female horse and like, when Chris Cooper said, like, oh, have a look inside, I was like, what? Is he just telling her, like, to go watch Seabiscuit go at it? I was like, whoa, 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 where's this film going? This seems quite wholesome up until this point. What's this, what's this old perv doing? You're like, horse porn? Like, yeah, where did that come from? Yeah, and then, and then I was, like, very, yeah, very kind of relieved to see to see him, like, kind of, I don't know, maybe it was post-coital, I don't know, kind of like, he did have a cigarette on the go and kind of, like, oh, it looked a little bit knackered out. It could have been a very different film, but yeah, the, you know, things like that are like really sweet and and you know true to the life as well. What about how this film kind of like um, wraps up? Like, kind of, kind of talked about that kind of closing monologue, but yeah, like the kind of uh, I said, he kind of break like uh, they both break their legs, and there's that kind of. I don't know, rise up like a phoenix. Uh, yeah, what do you kind of make? Because there's some, I don't know, I love those kind of conversations we get between, like, the. it's, it's kind of Charles going around to, to ask people their thoughts on, like, whether Red should race again. What do you, yeah, what do you make of those kind of scenes? It's interesting because um, it's a real moment of, like, if he's going to do it, he could like potentially never walk again. And there's a lot of kind of emotions going on it. And I did a little bit of reading and I don't think he actually won that race. I think he kind of like 
took a couple before he did come back and and win so there's a little bit of like creative license on that but I think it really kind of like ends the story quite well in that Mm -hmm. you know if he hadn't have had that one last chance to to race him and I'm also a bit like would that jockey his jockey may have uh, been in serious trouble if he'd basically slowed down to let another horse win which I kind of think is maybe a little bit of more creative license but it it kind of like gives them both like the one last glory moment together which is really sweet regardless of how like accurate i think it probably is yeah yeah yeah, definitely and i, I like um I, I i like one of the things i like in this film is there's a lot of like mirroring and stuff like that things that are said before and stuff like that and one of one of the moments we get that is i think when they find out that toby Maguire's character is blind in one eye and Jeff Bridges recalls a line back to uh, the Tom Smith character by Chris, yeah, Chris Cooper's character, and he says like, "Oh, uh, we're not gonna, we're not just gonna like send him out. To, yeah, we're not just gonna give up on him just because he's not a hundred percent stuff like that." I found that really sweet. And then there's something, yeah, in that kind of moment when Charles is trying to find out should 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 Red race anymore, he um. Uh, he asks George what his his opinion is, and he says like it's better to break a man's leg than to break a man's heart. I was like, ah, oh. like that 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 it's that's a good line that one. Yeah, that that that's kind of heartbreaking. And then yeah, you get Marcel. That yeah, that that, that is a, a scene where Elizabeth Banks gets to shine, and we kind of get a bit more of the interior life of them. That you can you can kind of see the love that they have for each other. Like she's kind of like taken on this grief and she's like there's that like small moment with that little um little kind of, toy thing they've got the yeah. little pinball thing yeah and it's that like that's really like do you, I mean, you kind of get that thing of like oh she's I don't know, like yeah that must be a lot for someone do you know what I mean to kind of like take on like i don't know so yeah i kind of yeah. feel for a little bit because she's carrying all the emotional baggage of like all of the main characters because she also sort of like, gets um charles to admit that his fears about letting red race or fears about him dying and he's obviously taken him on as kind of an adoptive father and Mm -hmm. his fears of losing his son and she's kind of trying to get him to acknowledge that and at the same time kind of like trying to get red to uh sort of process his emotions so she does feel as though she's kind of like guiding everyone emotionally by that point i think and I think in the filmmaking, it's seeded quite early that obviously, like, there's that re- there's that arc of Charles kind of like come like yeah, cut, not not fully forgetting about his son, but coming to terms with that and kind of letting go somewhat. Because we see when his son when his son dies, he locks away the barn with all the cars in, and kind of like that's it. And then we get that moment where it's kind of like a mirrored shot of the barn being opened and all the cars being taken out, and it's kind of given that that new life to be a horse barn again kind of like they're going to start training and stuff like that so when we get to the end and we get well let yeah let's hear toby Maguire's closing monologue before we kind of uh, start to wrap things up you know everybody thinks we found this broken down horse and fixed him but we didn't he fixed us every one of us And I guess in a way, we kind of fixed each other too. 
but like li- listening to that as well like uh, as much as that kind of it's a bit a bit corny and heart-wrenchy that 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 monologue that that score by randy newman is amazing like i was kind of i was kind of shocked to be like it's randy newman like i obviously know he's a composer and stuff like that but like normally he's a bit more jaunty and stuff like that and this is like a a proper proper grand score right there's lots of like swells going on and um it just really kind of like em- embodies the sort of emotions that are going on and then at the, at the same time you you've kind of got the the sort of more energetic race kind of audio and then those mo- moments uh it's just like really perfect and it really complements the the kind of like cinematography they both go like really well together in in kind of what you were saying like it's sort of like your perfect kind of like mum and dad film they're uh-huh. like these two elements are like the key elements to it the sound and how it looks and feels it's very warm isn't it yeah yeah it's and it's got that kind of it's got that figure of people of a certain i don't know or like certain disposition they will enjoy this kind of it's it's got a kind of like I don't know. Is I, I and I think the public perception for this, like I was listening to um, a podcast and they do like a, a movie draft from different years, and they did 2003, and somebody mentioned Sea Biscuit, and it was kind of scoffed at, and I was like, it's actually like it's like like seeing as I've like literally just watched this film, I was like, like is that the public? I think yeah, I think the public perception was me up until i watched this film i think i was the every man in that situation that it kind of it's schmaltzy it's kind of like too oscar baity and it, it very much is a 2003 film but i think there's nothing like there's nothing wrong with that like do you know what I mean like this is a perfect sunday afternoon film i think do you know what I mean like exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. kind of a bit full from a roast dinner kind of like do you know what I mean like get a bit weepy and then kind of sleepy and weepy yeah, yeah skulk off to bed early being like, i'm fine i'm fine i'm not gonna work tomorrow i'll just go to bed um <laughs> so any closing thoughts on the film before we start to wrap up at all helen um i mean i think like the message at the end the they kind of like fix each other and i think there's a lot to be said about kind of the the power that animals have to fix us and that I think a lot of people during like the pandemic and lockdown found that like our animal companions like really really helped them and on one hand this is kind of like a sports film but also it is about having that connection with an animal that allows you to grow and heal Mm -hmm. so I think that is like really beautiful and I, I like that it kind of ends on that rather than sort of going on about you know Seabiscuit won this and it won that and it broke these kind of records it kind of goes with like the heart rather yeah. than like the stats and things exactly yeah 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 it, that's that, I think this film is kind of made from the heart not from the mind like even listening to uh Gary Ross like yeah as I recounted earlier like the, the way he assembled his shots and stuff like that it's kind of it feels like and it, it, you can forgive the kind of schmaltz in the film for that that it's, it feels like it all comes from a good place and kind of like i don't know the film wants to do better in the world and the fact that they rehearse so much as well and it's kind of a joy to hear that there's there was no like animal injuries there was no kind of like major instances on set to 
in the cast and stuff like that. Whereas, like, if I don't know, you feel like a, a film that was made by somebody who didn't, or a team that didn't care as much. Do you know what I mean? You hear these kind of horror stories of animals were mistreated and there were accidents where they haven't kind of put the care and attention into to getting to getting everything right. And I think, yeah, I think as I said it's a perfect Sunday afternoon film. So. As we start to wrap things up, Helen, I always like to ask my guests, did you manage to find any Copla connections in this film? Any people who have worked with the Coplas elsewhere in their career? So the only one that stood out was the one that uh, we'd already mentioned was Chris Cooper, obviously famously with Nick Cage. I'm pretty sure there's probably more, but that was the one that without doing a, a massive kind of like tree thing that was as far as my brain could connect but i'm there i'm there must be more because they're the biggest filmmaking family in hollywood that's what i'm here for helen i'm here to 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 connect those dots Uh, i only managed to find three more but i think they're pretty interesting jeff bridges is in tucker the man and his dream uh where he plays a uh a kind of uh car designer from like kind of I think it was like at the same time as Ford or whatever like uh, kind of tried to revolutionize the car and that is a 1988 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola uh, when he was kind of well he dropped the the Ford so he was just Francis Coppola for a weird period in the 80s and um strange time of his life that was wasn't yes. it yes yeah yeah kind you of could forgive him for lots of things <laughs> It's kind of 84 until like, uh, <laughs> yeah, 88. He drops the Ford and then kind of comes back with the Godfather part three. He's like, Francis Ford Coppola's back, baby. And then it's kind of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Then whatever happens after there, let's not talk about Jack right now. Um, <laughs> uh, another one is Gianni Russo, who kind of he plays one of um, Charles's like, hangers on. I think he gets a line uh, at one point. Uh, plays Carlo in The Godfather, so Connie's husband, who betrays the family. Spoiler for a 50-year-old film there. Uh, <laughs> and William H. Macy is in Benny and June, which was also uh, a film that Jonathan Schwartzman was the cinematographer on. So that's our couple of connections for Seabiscuit. So let's rate this film, Helen. The way we do that, here on this podcast as i ask you what is the perfect wine pairing for this film so this was an interesting one because i i kind of stopped drinking so um <laughs> i was trying to think what i would rate it as and i mean i would say it's a red wine uh-huh. it has like red wine vibes um to me and I'd probably say it's it's middle to top. I think it is nice. the wine that you find in the supermarket that is normally a little bit spenny, but on a discount, you're like, nice. yeah, mm, affordable, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you feel a little bit special. So um, middle, but um, top shelf on offer, but middle, middle, middle pricing. <laughs> Nice, nice. I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's kind of, and it's got aspirations. It's it's a bottle that looks like a label that looks really fancy as well. It's got aspirations to be the top of the top shelf, but doesn't. I don't. I don't think quite makes it because of the kind of I don't know, 
it, yeah, it feels very much of the time it was made and doesn't have a, it's not an all time classic. Um, <laughs> but very, very like full bodied and kind of like aromas of like wood chips and hay. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, we all want in a glass of red wine. So, based on Seabiscuit alone, are the Coppolas the greatest film family of all time? I mean, based on this is probably a little bit of a stretch, but um, it's definitely a strong contribution. And I think for the ability to, on the one hand, be contributing to Bayhem and to this is very, very strong. Perfect, perfect. Uh, uh, and then let's, uh, yeah, let's wrap this up. And I always like to ask, Two questions at the end. Uh, the, um, uh, well, the first one is probably one of the meanest things I've ever written down ever, which is, which Coppola family member would you keep, but in doing so, you get rid of the entire filmographies of the rest of the family? I haven't stopped thinking about this since you sent it through, <laughs> and oh, such a hard question. Like, so, so hard. So basically, I'm I'm like a huge Wes Anderson fan, like, and I'm just like, oh, if I don't, if I don't pick who has had the most contribution to Wes's films, then I lose them. But then also, if I don't pick Sophia, then I lose Lost in Translation. So, Sorry, Francis, but I'm prepared to like say goodbye to the Godfather <laughs> and Apocalypse Now and like your entire influence on cinema from like the 70s and, and everyone else. Um, but I'm like trying to think how is there a way I can keep both? Uh, I don't think there is. And I think when I first watched Lost in Translation, it it kind of like moved me in a way that film hadn't done before. Yeah, there's and unfortunately there's no cheat code for Wes Anderson and Sophia Coppola in this part. There isn't. So I'm 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 gonna keep Sophia even though we want her behind the camera and not acting. So <laughs> we can you know, we can get rid of that, but um yeah, just because don't think I'd really seen a, a female filmmaker like that and oh. just just for lost in translation um I'm I'm, I'm gonna keep her please well that's a that, that, that's a perfect perfect answer to lead me on to my next question is what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of lost in translation I was also thinking about this and for some reason all I kept thinking was a line from uh, Eternal Sunshine, like Meet Me in Montauk, which it it isn't. But I'm I'm going to go with Everything Will Be Okay because I, I think he's kind of reassuring her that this this will all just pass. Everything will be fine. And I know there's some interpretation that perhaps he's sort of saying, you know, you should leave lose your husband. And then there's kind of like another interpretation that you know he's he's telling her how how much. Like he loves her, and there's kind of like a weird sort of relationship going on. But I think he's just sort of saying everything will be okay. It's uh, all yeah. fine. You've got this. Yeah. In, in the Bill Murray way that he probably would. <laughs> Amazing. I love that. I love that. It's a, 
a heartfelt and kind of honest answer. A lot of people use that as a as an excuse for a joke. So I like, I like that. I like that. I like I'm just not funny enough to have done a joke. <laughs> I would have loved to have done something really witty and brilliant, but I just thought, you know, it's Bill Murray. He'd be like, yeah, yeah. just everything will be fine. Yeah, I like that. I like that as an answer, and I'd I'd like that to be the case. Also, I would like to never know what was actually said. Um, so, Helen, before I let you go, where can people find yourself and the Flixwatcher podcast if they do care so to find out what you guys are doing? Please do. Please come in and scout us out. If you're looking for uh, an entry episode, then uh, please uh, search out uh, 8 Mile, which was your uh, <laughs> film okay. pick. I mean, that would be a good starting point. Another sports movie. Another sports movie wrapped up in a disguise of uh, battle rap. This is it. And uh, you can find us by searching Flix Watcher and uh, you can follow us at Flix Watcher Pod on Twitter where we, uh, when we're, we're recording, we'll always put a shout out and ask for people's um, contributions to the episode. So you can get involved in sharing your views in there. But yeah, just um, search Flix, Flix Watcher and uh, you'll find us wherever you get your podcast. Amazing. Obviously, all that stuff will be in the show notes as well. And thank you so much, Helen, for coming and making some Coppola connections with me. Thanks so much for having me. And there we go, guys. The brilliant Helen Sadler to talk about the surprisingly good Sea biscuit, a very kind of I don't know, it's a very like David Gray of a film. It's kind of a middle of the road, but like you you probably like it more than you'd care to admit to. I guess that's my kind of feelings as I've sat with this film for a few more days. Um how do you feel about this film? Do you think that me and Helen were were overkind to it? Were we yeah, did we did we do we give this film more praise than it's deserved? feel free to let me know you can do that on all the socials so that is twitter instagram facebook letterbox and tiktok all at caged in pod or if you want to drop me an email you can do so over caged in pod at gmail.com so if you enjoyed this episode or any episode of the podcast for your first time please head on over to apple podcast Acast, spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now give it a lovely five star rating and review and in your review as always remember to let me know what you think bill murray says to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation if you're feeling even more generous and you're just like hey i've, I've left the rating and review what more can i do to support the podcast well you can head on over to patreon dot com forward slash caged in pod where you could become a movie brat bro like the great people over there at the moment so we have the fantastic pod daddy jonathan foster over there we have uh, we have my good man russell uh over there we have the lovely lovely max pentecost who provides the music for the movie brat bros as well he's he's on the patreon and we have super marcy from the super network uh fantastic collection of australian podcasts they're all on the patreon you want to be like them yeah you can become a movie brat and get access to our exclusive movie brat bros podcast where we are currently looking at 
all of the films of the one, the only, the twisted, demented, and bloody fantastic Brian De Palma. It's a lot of fun. Uh, one of the newest episodes you'll be able to hear that's out at the moment is my chat with Rich Nelson of the Do You Want Me podcast, where we talked about Brian De Palma's 1987 crime film the untouchables it was a bloody lovely chat and i got some fun 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 chats coming up soon for you guys and i think you'll really enjoy it so as always guys i've been petrus pat syllabus your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree remember to keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.